So we're at the end of the Apostles' Creed. So much could be said, and and the catechism writers are taking us through, so much could be said about the creed, about the contents of our faith. But remember, this catechism, this Bible study, it's not a book of doctrine primarily, although there's really deep theology here. Everything that's been explained about the main points of our faith, everything, it's been brief, it's been to the point, and it's been focusing on the benefits of what we believe for our lives. And added to what we believe and the benefits for our lives is the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting at the end of the creed. Did you notice that the word comfort is prominent here? Not in the answers, but each one of the questions has the word comfort in it. And and that takes us, we haven't seen a lot of that since the very first question and answer, Lord's Day 1, that started out the study. The comfort of belonging to Jesus, we learn here at the end of the creed, that comfort of belonging to Jesus is for this life, And the next, the comfort of Jesus does not end with death. This is really powerful, powerful stuff for our lives. These are life and death matters. Matters that that we've been been confronted with and dealing with as a a church with the death of of two saints. Uh, Just in the last few weeks, uh, the death, death of loved ones. This is about God's promises. This is about the truths and the hope and the comfort for God's people. Even in the most difficult thing anyone could ever, ever face. The grave. Now tonight, we're going to look at these matters from a broader perspective than we did in these recent funeral and graveside services. Uh, We're going to look at this in terms of great end times events that the Bible talks about. Um, Like I was kind of saying before, some churches go overboard with this. The other mistake is to ignore what the Bible says. And the fact is, there is quite a bit that we're told. It, It takes some sorting through. It's sometimes difficult language, but the Bible does tell us quite a bit. Um, for your help, there's a little outline, a partially filled outline of five points that we're going to follow right through tonight. And, uh, you know, maybe someday we'll have to do a whole series on this, but for now, and, and you're going to see it as this sermon goes on, I think, there's just, there's a lot here. Uh, for now, five great events of the end times. Five great events. One, the fullness of the Gentiles. That's number one. The fullness of the Gentiles. Another way to put that is the full number of the Gentiles will come in. That's what Romans 11.25 talks about. It uses the word full number. That means fullness, a huge abundance, complete. So it's talking about the total number of elect Gentiles. Non Gentiles are non-Jewish people. The gospel has been going out. The church has been growing and expanding in the world, even if we can't see that here in North America, because it hasn't been here. But it's true. 
The fact is that in the 20th century, more people have come to Christ than in the previous 1,900 years. In Korea, there has been explosive growth in the last 110 years. In Africa, in the year 1900, there were fewer than 8 million Christians. In 2000, 380 million Christians. Today, they estimate 482 million Christians in Africa in 110 years, from 8 million to 482. In Asia, there's phenomenal growth. In Central and South America, in the last century, the number's grown from 60 million believers to 500 million. In 1900, almost half of the world was unreached by the gospel. In 1970, about 40% still was unreached. Today, it's certainly less than 19% of the world that remains to be reached. In just the past 100 years, the church has grown from 455 million to over 2 billion. So we're getting closer. We're getting closer to the day when the full number of God's children will have heard the gospel and respond. And when, when that day comes, we'll be near the end. And there, there are signs, there's clear evidence. We're getting closer. Another great event, the second one I'm going to talk about tonight. Jewish revival is the second event that the Bible talks about. In addition to Gentiles turning to Jesus, the Bible indicates that there will be a great revival of Jewish people near the end of time. The Jews as a people rejected Christ, but Romans 11.1 says that God has not rejected them. God calls the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles to faith in his son Jesus. Romans 11.25 says Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Though we've been grafted in, that's the language the Bible uses, God will not forget the natural branches. And there are signs that God is beginning to graft in the natural branches. More Jews have come to Christ in the 20th century, especially since 1970, than in the previous 1900 years as well. There are many thousands of Jewish Christians and hundreds of Messianic congregations today. Some Christians also connect this end-time conversion with the land of Israel. Amos 9.15 reads, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I've given them. God did that once after the exile, and some believe that God is doing that again. In 1839, there were only 12,000 Jews in Palestine, and 1880, 30,000. In 1925, there were 80,000. So from 12 to 30 to 80,000. And some Christians, some theologians in those days wondered if this prophecy was already beginning to be fulfilled. And of course, we know they hadn't seen anything yet. By 1948, when the Jewish state of Israel became reestablished, 750,000 Jews were living in the land. Today, There are 5,300,000 Jews that have come from more than 100 nations. They're returning to the land. And if many begin accepting Christ there as elsewhere, then Jesus' coming may not be too far away. 
Certainly when we talk about that, the rights, we believe, the rights of Palestinians need to be protected. Israel as a nation needs to seek justice and abide by international law, even if we believe that the land is still promised them by God. Romans 11.26, and Romans 11 is the text that has a lot on this, says, and so all Israel will be saved. The church is the new Israel, the spiritual Israel. Paul is clear about that in different places. If you're a Christian, then you're an Israelite in the truest sense. Then Old Testament history is our history because the Bible has the history of salvation. And that's why so many prophecies about Israel seem to be fulfilled in, in the church in, in, in great measure. The fact is the Bible directs us this way. Great events of the end times will include a tremendous revival among non-Jews, Gentiles, as well as Jews. And in this way, says Paul, all Israel, both Gentiles and Jews, who come to Christ will be saved. Third, days of distress will come. We read a lot about that in Matthew 24. And it's that I think that phrase was in Matthew 24. It's right from Mark 13, 19 as well. And it covers a number of troubles that will come as we approach the end. With the full number of Gentiles coming in and Jews turning to Jesus like never before, we might think it's going to lead to peace and great times. But the fact is, the Bible says the end times are going to be hard times. There will be attempts to wipe out the cause of Jesus Christ. And of course, to an extent, that's always been the case. Wherever God is at work, the forces of evil want to destroy that work and stop it. Whether that's in your own heart and life, in your family, or in the church, or anywhere. Because true Christianity is the opposite of what the world stands for. Jesus says, all men will hate you because of me. And he adds, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but it's also been granted you to suffer for him. Different places in Scripture talk about natural disasters like earthquakes and famines, fearful events, great signs from heaven. Now, of course, events like this have been going on throughout the history of the world. And what the Bible is, say, is showing us is that it seems like these events will accelerate and increase near the end of time and cause great dread and fear. Could we be in those days? Earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanoes? Maybe. Maybe we're near the beginning. In any case, wherever there are natural disasters, it should cause us to think about whether we're ready to meet the Lord. Every event should tell us that God is coming soon. We must be ready. Mark 13, 7, and this our chapter 2 talks about wars, rumors of wars, economic, political instability in addition to natural disasters. We read, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And this is all going to result in intense persecution of the church. 
You know, just like Nero blamed the Christians for the great fire in Rome and the resulting economic turmoil that that caused, Christians are also going to be blamed for the instability in the world. And the persecutions against the church will be very intense. Christians will be dragged before officials, as Luke 21 says, betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, friends. Some will be put to death because of me, says Jesus. While there are indications, just based on the numbers that I shared with you, that we may be seeing the early beginnings of revival among Gentiles and Jews, we also may be seeing the beginnings of the backlash of the distress, because enormous persecution is taking place today against those who follow Jesus. 200 million brothers and sisters in the Lord in more than 60 countries are experiencing some sort of persecution for their faith, especially in Islamic countries. Christians are hunted, they're hated, they're imprisoned, they're scorned, and much worse happens to them for their faith. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than the previous 1900 years combined. Did you know that? Bombs exploded in Baghdad just again on Wednesday, targeting and harming Christians. Jesus says a time is coming when the events and the persecution are going to be so horrible that if the Lord did not cut short those days, no one would survive. But Jesus also says, if we're close to him, no matter how hard it gets, he's going to see us through. A couple more aspects to this great distress. Part of the great distress, the Bible says, will be the appearance of Antichrist. You've heard that language before. You've read it in the Bible. The appearance of Antichrist. 1 John 2.18. This is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. The Bible speaks of a coming figure who will oppose Jesus. In Revelation 13.7, that figure is called the beast who has been given power to make war against the saints. The world will be astonished by him and many will follow him. The Antichrist, says Revelation 13.7, will be given authority over every tribe people, language, and nation. He will blaspheme God and slander his name. He's called the man of lawlessness in places in Scripture. He'll oppose everything that is God's, and he will exalt himself. Some people suggest that one world government will be formed to do his bidding. And Revelation says that everyone will be forced to receive the mark of the beast, some sort of personal identification technique so that when the time comes, the Antichrist can make his move. And any number of folks think that with the advances in technology in recent years, we're closer to the possibility of this identification technique, this mark happening. Who will the Antichrist be? Well, people have thought Nero would be the Antichrist or was Hitler, Saddam Hussein, the Apostle John tells us that there have been many antichrists throughout history. So those could very well be examples of antichrists, little a. But there will also be one main one at the end. 
In addition to Antichrist, the release of Satan will be a part of the great distress we read in Scripture. So, right now, Satan is on a leash. He doesn't, you know, the gospel's going out. We're, we're meeting here. Uh, the good news is being preached. God is holding Satan back, we read. But near the end of time, we read that Satan is going to be released for a short time. The dragon, Satan, is going to give the Antichrist his power and great authority. So the Antichrist's accomplishments, when he or she arises, those accomplishments are going to be empowered by Satan himself. And when the devil and Antichrist team up to threaten the church, it's going to be the time of the most severe persecution in history. Christians will be despised and hated in the world. Wickedness will increase with such intensity that we read in our text that many will turn away from the faith and the love of most will grow cold. We also read that for the sake of the elect, thankfully, those days will be shortened. Are we in the times of great distress that the Bible talks about now? Or are we at the verge of entering into them? It's possible. Certainly, calamities and trouble abound. Doesn't seem like things are getting any better. Persecution abounds. Again, hard for us to enter into, but Christians are persecuted all over the world. It, it's, it's, and it's possible that the Antichrist is alive now and somewhere gaining power in this world. Another big part of the great distress that I'm not going to get into is Armageddon. Armageddon, but I'm not going to get into that right now, but the Bible says some very specific things about Armageddon, and basically at the end, a, a worldwide conflict or battle, that's what that's about. It, all of this distress, the great persecution, is going to culminate in the mother of all battles. Um, there'll be, it seems like there's going to be some sort of fierce, likely global effort to snuff out the church, Gentile and Jewish Christians alike, once and for all. But God's people are going to be okay because Jesus will come to the rescue. And that's the fourth point, rescue for God's people. We're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. When, when things start to look hopeless for God's people, and sadly, when many people desert to the enemy, then the most amazing scene is going to happen. King Jesus and his angels are going to appear on the clouds with power, with glory, and Jesus is going to send his angels to gather his people. The trumpet will sound. The Bible seems to suggest that cosmic weaponry is going to be used. 
um, that verse 29, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give light. The stars will fall from the sky. That's why we sometimes associate or think of falling asteroids with the end times and the destruction of the world. That's right from Matthew. Stars will fall from the sky. What that will be exactly, we don't know. Christ will come to rescue his people, gathering them in, safe and sound into his arms. The wicked who dared to set themselves up against God's people and the church and God's cause will be utterly destroyed. Part of that great rescue operation will be the resurrection of the body. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. When a believer dies, the soul goes immediately to be with Jesus in heaven. And we who are left behind have a memorial service. We stand at the graveside where the body is in a casket put to rest in a grave. That word cemetery comes from a word that means seed. And that's a very biblical notion. Because for Christians, it's a big seed, seed. For Christians, the cemetery is not a graveyard, but it's truly a garden. The body laid to rest is a seed. And when Jesus returns, the seeds of believers that were planted will be part of a great resurrection harvest that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. In the twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be raised from the grave, changed into glorious bodies, that will be reunited with our souls. That's the Christians who have already died. Christians who are still alive when Jesus comes will receive new bodies at that same time. And then we have what's called the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. Dispensationalists, that's a breed of premillennialists, which we didn't have time to get into the different views of the thousand-year reign of Revelation 20. That's a big thing in the end times. Dispensationalists have a very particular idea in mind when they say rapture, and it's related to their particular view of the end times. I don't believe in the rapture in that sense. But we certainly do believe in the rapture in the sense that Paul talks about. The rapture is when God's people with their new bodies are taken up to meet the Lord in the air. The fifth great event, the final one we're going to talk about, is the great white throne judgment. Revelation twenty eleven. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. It's like the sky will open, a great white throne will appear, everyone will be standing before it. Christians, believers, are already with Jesus, but now the wicked are summoned from the dead too to appear before the judgment throne. The Bible has warned again and again that this day would come. Revelation 20.12 says, I saw the dead, great, and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Isn't that interesting? Books. Um, And we read about a number of books. Likely, the Bible will be opened then. 
That's the standard by which Jesus will judge the world. Psalm 139 says there's a book of God's plan regarding every day of each person's life. In Malachi this morning, Malachi 3, we read about the book of remembrance. Revelation 20 talks about the book with the deeds of humanity. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. And God's records are totally accurate. God has all the information, all the evidence he will need to make a fair judgment. The book of life will be the last book opened on Judgment Day. Revelation 20, 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. People today who deny the existence or disregard the existence of a place called hell are making the worst mistake of their entire lives. They believe that a loving God could never send people to hell. They believe that if if God is truly loving, he wouldn't do that. But they forget for God to be truly loving perfectly loving, it also means he's perfectly just. God's word is truth. God will not be mocked. And if you're not covered by the blood of Jesus, the only sacrifice for sin, the one who stood in your place, then the Bible says your name will not be found in the book of life. The only way of escape is to put your trust In Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat. Even those who belong to Jesus is the impression. We'll have to give account for our actions and our words as well. But the difference is, the sins of Christians will be revealed as forgiven. Psalm 103, 10 through 12 talks about the sea of God's forgetfulness. The sins of those covered by Jesus are going to be cast into that sea. Judgment Day will turn out to be a glorious day of rejoicing that the blood of Jesus really covers our sins. Christ is coming to judge everyone, but just coming to convict the ungodly. So children of God, if you confess Jesus and know him in your heart, you have nothing to fear on that last day. It's going to be a great day. To those who belong to the Lord in this life, Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. And at that moment, every disappointment Every sacrifice that you've made, every time and period of grief and suffering, every difficult day, every insult or attack that you've endured for Jesus Christ, it will have been worthwhile. It's all going to be worth it just to hear him say, well done. And then eternity will begin. And there's a lot we could say tonight that we don't have time to about heaven.
Abraham Kuyper believes that many of the fine arts like music and dance will be enjoyed in glory. Others have speculated that even technological advances that mankind has made will continue on into eternity. Much to Sarah's disappointment, but my happiness. But we'll see on that one. (laughs) Billy Graham supposes that this entire huge universe was created for God's people in glory to be able to go out into and explore. As the Catechism says, we read it, no eye has seen, it's quoting God's word, of course, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no one can imagine what God has in store. God will dwell with his people, will be in his presence. You might think that the joys of heaven would make us otherworldly in our focus, but exactly the opposite is true. We want as many people to be there with us as possible. We want to be sure we're ready ourselves. We want to prepare by being sure we belong to Jesus, by being an active part of God's work, his church, his kingdom, his mission, spreading the gospel, spreading the hope, sharing the news that Jesus is coming. Does knowing about these events, does that mean we, we, we can predict Jesus' return? No, the Bible says no one knows the day or the hour. But God does tell us much so that we can be ready, I believe, and be prepared for the hard times that could be coming and that we actually do experience now so that we can be certain already now that we are walking closely with Jesus. And you can be sure in your life today And even if in our lifetimes these end-time events start culminating and happen, you can be sure that when you're with Jesus, he's going to carry you safely through into eternity.